Father, we are, we are thankful, Lord, and it's, I can't say enough just how beautiful it is that you are at work, Lord. And Lord, we're thankful for this time to come together, that you brought us together. Lord, we're thankful for the many ways you, you love us, the immeasurable graces and mercies and love you show us, Lord, in Christ. And Lord, I pray today as we look at your word that you would help us to be, to see your commands, to see who we once were apart from Christ, to see the glory of the gospel and how that empowers us and changes us so that we obey your commands, not out of duty, but out of a delight, Lord. God, we thank you and praise you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So for those of you who know us well, and for those of you, some of you who do not, um, my wife and I, Claudia, we are in the process of going through adoption. Adoption's a very uh, passionate subject for us. We've done a lot of reading, a lot of studying, and we're, we're about halfway through the process now. Um, we have been through home studies. We have been through interviews. We have been through... Uh, Claudia's already been through the, you know, all the kinds of doctor appointments you have to do. It's, it's an amazing process to become an adopted parent, to become a parent. One of the things we did was we read through the book Adopted for Life by Russell Moore. In that book, Russell Moore teaches and, and communicates something that while I understood it, I didn't understand it rightly. He points out the theological aspects of adoption, that in Christ God is adopting us to be his children. He points out the practical, relational aspects of adoption that in the, in the human realm, when we adopt a child, we take someone who is not our child. And through the process of adoption, we make them our own. We make them as though they are our flesh and blood child. Our children, our heirs, they have a new identity as our children. And this is a beautiful truth. This is a glorious truth that someone who is not our child can become our child. But the, the, the more beautiful truth here is not the earthly truth, but the heavenly truth that God is adopting sinners who rebelled against him to be his children. That sinners who were once rebels against God now have a new family. Their identity has changed. Now, when you talk about adoption on a human level, you realize that adoption takes, is, is a process. You adopt, like, we're one year into probably two or three years of the process. And once we adopt, even when we bring this child into our home, it takes time for the child to identify with us as parents, for us to, to strive to love and to invest in this child well. And to just, it's a transition period for both the child and the parents. And what we see in the heavenly realm is that when God saves us, when he adopts us to be his children, we're his children. It's done. It's, it's, it's legal. It's complete. But oftentimes it takes us time to live out that new identity we have in him. So as we're looking at the text today, we're going to be looking at Titus 3, chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. Um, what we're going to be seeing is... Just like these children mentioned earlier, if we've been saved by Christ, that through, God's through Christ's finished work on the cross, we're also given a new identity as God's children. That we'll see that God is calling us to live out this new identity in Christ. 
And this, uh, the text is on page 998 in your pew Bibles. And uh, Paul's writing to Titus and says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, as I was talking about adoption earlier, I said that God is calling us to live out our new life in Christ. And in this text, we see in verse 1 and 2 these commands. And then verse 3 through 7, what we see is the reasons behind the commands. So if any of you have worked with, well, first of all, if you worked with our kids in Tots or Sprouts or Kit Redeemer Kids, or if you've had children or been around children, you know when you tell them to do something, what's the first thing they ask you to do? Or the first thing they ask? What's the first question? Why? Yes. Well, God, by his grace, has worked it out to give us the why. Paul, when he tells Titus to remind them of these things in verses 1 and 2, then spends 3 through 7 giving them the why. So, because by our natural human inclination that we want to know why before we even know what people want us to do, um, or before we'll do it, we're going to look at the why first. So we're going to start in verse 3 today. We're going to go to 4 to 7, and then in light of what that's taught us, we're going to go back to verses 1 and 2. I just want to kind of give you a, a framework for what's coming up. So, let me read again verses 1 through 3, just for the context. Um, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So Paul is writing to Timothy. And for those of you who may not be as familiar with this book, uh, Paul has been on the island of, of Crete, which is in the Mediterranean Sea. He's been preaching the gospel, and they're seeing churches come, spring up in, in the cities. And Paul leaves Timothy, uh, Titus, I'm sorry, Titus behind to establish the churches. He leaves Titus behind to set up elders we see in chapter 2. He leaves Titus behind, as we see in chapter 3, to remind them of truths. So in light of Titus being left to remind the churches in the way they should live and equipping them with leadership so that they can last, that's what this is written in light of. I just want to make that clear. 
and understood. Now, Paul in verses 1 and 2 is giving good commands. These these commands are great. But in verse 3, he gives the first reason that we should do these things. He says, to do all these things, do all these imperative, these commands. But in verse 3, he says, for we ourselves were once this way. Paul is saying here that we were once in the same spiritual state, as Christians writing to the church, we were once in the same spiritual state as those unbelievers around us. We were once in the same spiritual state as those who've rebelled against God. And because of that, that's my, Paul's first reason for Titus to remember to do these good works. So Paul's first reason, they says, to remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy, is because we can identify with those people those difficult people in our lives, where the church can identify with those people in their lives who are apart from Christ, who have not accepted Christ, who have not heard the gospel, because we, as the church who've heard the gospel, were once the same as them. We can identify with them. The church could. We need to remember this. Titus says, remember them. Remind them of this. Paul says, remind them of this in the book of Titus that we ourselves were once this way. It's important we remember this. So often, a, a, we can come off, I can come off, we can come off, the church can come off as though we think we're better than others. We forget that we walked in the same sin. We were enslaved to the same foolishness. We were at one time passing our days in malice and envy. We need to remember that we are the same as the people outside the door have never heard the gospel. And because of that, because we, we were in that, because we can identify with them in that, we can love them differently. Because we can look back and say, this is who we were before we knew Christ. We can obey, obey verse 2 and 3. We can speak evil of no one because we know we were that person. We can avoid quarreling because we know we were the rebellious, quarreling person. We can, speak, we can uh, be gentle because we know we were the angry, mean, ungentle person. We can show perfect courtesy toward all people who are difficult, who are unloving, and who feel unlovable because we were those people. That's the first reason that Paul gives to Timothy for why to do these good works is because we were once in this same spiritual state apart from Christ. Now, what spiritual state does he define? Do we really get a hold of this? Now, I didn't, I I came to Christ in college at, at age 19 And I I can remember very clearly my rebellion and bitterness and hating and and, uh, malice and discontent and speaking evil of others. Um, It's very easy for me. 
For some of us who came to Christ at an earlier age, it may not be as easy to remember how we were apart from Christ. But this is what all of our states were apart from knowing him. Now, Paul's describing the state of our souls that we were in. He points to our rebellion, our disobedience, our folly, and slavery to sin. He points out that we passed our days living in malice and envy, hating others and hating one another. Now, Paul's, like I said, pointing to sin. He's pointing to sin in everyone's lives. He says in verse 3, for we ourselves, talking about himself and Titus. He says, we were once in this. There's nobody who was once in this. The truth in the verse that we need to get is that we are these people. That this is our heart. This is our life apart from Christ. We are guilty of sinning against the holy and just God and we deserve his punishment. Now, from our first thoughts, we rebel against God. We rebel against the authorities he puts in place over us, our parents. I'm thankful to have mine here today. Sorry. Uh, you know, par- and parents are put in place as authorities, verse 1, by God for our good. What do we do? As soon as we can, we rebel against them. We lie to them. We, we deceive them. We, 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 we turn away from them. We don't listen to what they tell us. Um, parents know their children are sin factories, that they sin. Um, should, kids don't have to be shown to do it. They just naturally do it. I'm reminded of a story that I will, may or may not admit to having remembered of my, my sister and I when we were kids. My parents in our house in Oak Park had just gotten brand new carpet. And my sister and I, I believe, wanted to water a plant. So we decided, hey, we're going to help mom and dad. We're going to water the plant. So we go, we pour the water on the plant. And I, I, I claim I don't remember this, but the plant fell over. But don't mud all over the brand new carpet. And instead of going, you know, mom, dad, I accept my licks. I'm sorry I did wrong. We didn't want to. We hid it. We covered it up. What did we do? We went, we put the plant on top of the mud and left it there. And guess what? It didn't work. They found it and we were in trouble. But no one had to teach us to try to deceive our parents. No one had to teach us to try to hide from the consequence of our actions. Even as children, we were rebelling. Even as children, we were sinning. We were lying. We were, I think we still to this day blame it on each other. And I, in all honesty, I'm not sure if either of us remember where it came from. Or how it happened anymore. But uh, we wanted to escape the consequence of our actions. We rebelled against those who God put in our lives for our good. And, but we want to remember that God put our parents in our lives. And we, we make light of children lying or, or of teenagers lying. That's just a rebellious phrase phase. Well, God put the authorities in our lives that he put them, put there, parents, teachers, bosses. In verse 1, he reminds us to be submissive to, our, to the rulers and authorities. He put them there for our good. But our sin, my, my rebellion, my lying to my parents, my hiding my dirt was not primarily against them. 
In the end, because God put them there, my rebellion was against God. Like, it's important that we realize that our sin is not primarily horizontal. Our sin is not. Even though it is atrocious, even though there are grave consequences of our sin when we sin against each other, our sin is not primarily horizontal because it's sin because it violates God's command, vertical. Our sin has consequences and it is horizontal, but because God is the one who gave the commands and God is the one who established the authorities, our sin is primarily against him, guys. We are all guilty of sin. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all violators of his commandments. Paul brings this out in verse 3 for us to remember this, who we once were or who we are now if we've not trusted in Christ. We are all guilty of sin, like I said, and God sets the standards. The commandment to lie, to not to lie, not to bear false witness, was not first given by our parents, but by God. And by God's grace, the parents communicate it to you as well. The commandment not to to, to honor our parents comes out again. To not kill, steal, or commit adultery. When we violate these standards, when we violate these commands, we're, we're violating His holiness, His commands. Now, the Scripture teaches us that God is infinitely holy. He is perfect. He is without flaw. He is perfectly, infinitely holy. And when we sin, when we we rebel against him, in one point of the law, we're guilty of it all. Think about it this way. The consequences of our sin, horizontal, are almost constantly related to the importance and the value of the one we sin against. When we speak evil about a stranger across the street, there may be next to nothing or no horizontal consequence of that sin. Um, When we sin against our neighbor, there may be some consequences. When we sin against our spouse, there are definitely consequences. But if we were to sin against the President of the United States, if we were to to, to deceive him, lie against him, if we were to, to wage war against him personally, if we were to sin against him, there could be serious consequences. Now, When we sin against God, God is much greater than any of those examples. And when we sin against him, we have committed an infinitely evil rebellion against him. And we are, we deserve the consequences of that. Guys, Paul reminds the church, reminds Titus to remind the church first of their sin when it comes to obedience. Why? Sin is no light matter. Why? Because it helps us identify with others who don't know Christ. We're not better than them, but we are simply saved by grace. and We walked in the same lies, believed the same deceptions. We were slaves to sin. We hated and envied one another. We need to get this. We really do. We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is either our past before we came to Christ or it's our present reality, whether we recognize it cognitively or not. 
we may not see ourselves this way. We think now, we say, I'm basically a good person, but when we look at our hearts in light of the Word of God and how it calls us to perfect obedience, we see we've rebelled. This, this way that he speaks of sin is describing us and others. Now, why does Paul, why do I spend 20 minutes talking about sin? It's like, okay, Keith, we're beat up now. The reason why you talk about sin is because if you don't talk about sin, grace makes no, no difference. It's not a big deal. Let's look at a doctor. Let's look at the example of a doctor. The doctor comes. I go to the doctor. I have to for the adoption process. I go to the doctor and he says, Keith, you have this disease. And take these pills, you'll be fine. I'll say, oh, take some pills. Okay, I'll take them for a couple days. I feel good. I feel fine. I stop taking them. It's not a big deal. Now, if I go to the doctor and the doctor says, Keith, you have a heart condition that will kill you dead in one week if you don't take three pills a day for the, next, for the rest of your life. He says, it will start by crippling you. It will lead to, to the, the, the loss of your limbs. It will lead to your eventual death, painful, and clearly makes that out. I'm going to jump on the bandwagon and do exactly what the doctor says because the doctor has the cure. Paul gives great, and I am trying to give great detail to our sin so that when we see ourselves as people who have no hope apart from Christ, we have great hope in Christ. Guys, when we have no, when we see our sin rightly, that we are justly condemned, the gospel is good news. The good news is while we deserve nothing, we deserve God's wrath, God has not left us there. God chooses to save a people for himself. So the first reason that Paul speaks of for, um, regarding why to obey the commands is who we once were, that we remember that and that we love others in light of that. But God does not leave us there. Paul transitions in verses 4 through 7 to show us the good news of the gospel. We go from our identity apart from Christ to the identity we can have in Christ, who we are now in Christ. Let me read verses 4 through 7 again. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we may become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, a friend of mine would say that's one of the biggest buts in the Bible. And it truly is a glorious transition. Paul says, here's who we are, but God. God was at work to save a people for himself. Now, we've looked at how we were all sinners. We've, we've looked at how either we are sinners or we were sinners who rebelled against God. But now we're going to see how God has acted to save a people for himself 
Guys, God saves. God redeems. God takes that sin and nails it to the cross and we bear it no more. That's a great news. We cannot save ourselves. But God in his goodness and loving kindness saved us through Jesus Christ. Without him we have nothing. But in him we have everything. What we could not do, God did for us. And so what we're going to do is we're going to unpack here in this text, in verses 4 through 7, how God saved us. Because this is what the second point that Paul has for Titus to tell the church. Guys, we love, we follow these, these commands because of who we once were and who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. Now, we start, we're, we're saved, we are redeemed. It says, because, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Now that goodness and loving kindness of God, if you want to know the goodness and loving kindness of God, you look no further than Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment and the, the penultimate point of the goodness and loving kindness of God we see in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we see this in verse 4, that Christ appeared, that he took on flesh, that he who is God became man and dwelt amongst us, that he took on flesh lived the, the, the sinless, perfect life that we could not live. He died the death that we deserved on the cross. And by faith in him, we can have salvation. He paid the penalty for all sins of those who believe. He paid the penalty of all of our sin. But that's not all he did. See, God sent Christ the fullness and manifestation of his loving kindness. And he saved us not because of works we did. It's not like, well, I'm basically a good person. I was, I was trying hard after God. I'm trying to be a nice guy who, you know, tips well at the store, at the, at the restaurant, and, you know, just nice to my neighbor. No, that's not what it says here. It says that he saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. God saved us in his mercy. This is, this mercy of God to save us is amazing. This gives us hope. It gives us joy. It gives us life that he saves us. Now, mercy means not getting what we deserve. Uh, basically, fleshed out, mercy is not getting what we deserve. In his mercy, he took the wrath and penalty for our sin that we deserve, and Christ took that. Praise be to God for his love and mercy toward us. Now, Paul goes on not only to talk about how he saved us despite ourselves, not only how he saved us through Christ or how Christ paid the penalty for our sin, but he goes on to tell us how it was according to his mercy 
by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The washing of regeneration, speaking of God regenerating us, bringing us out of darkness and into light, bringing us out of uh, rebellion against him, hating God, to love and turning to love God. It's the change in our hearts that happens when we come to a point where we, where we place our trust and faith in the Lord Jesus. But God doesn't leave it there. God doesn't leave it and just say, okay, you're good with me now. We're, we're neutral. No, God then also gives the Holy Spirit and renews us. The renewal is a, the, the washing of regeneration is a one-time thing, but the renewal is a day-by-day thing as God gives the Holy Spirit that we may walk in newness of life in Him. Now, He gives the Holy Spirit whom He poured out richly on us through Jesus Christ our Savior. So I, I do want to point out real quick, the Trinity, the Lord, is at work here. The Father sends the Son, sends the Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The Holy Spirit is here at work, and Christ is here in saving us through him. So the whole Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are at work here to save the people for himself. Not only that, we see in this text, it's, it's, it's amazing, we see the divinity of Christ in this text. We see in verse uh, 4, uh, sorry, I apologize. Yeah, verse 4 and verse 6. But when the goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared, and then whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Christ is equal, is, is declaimed the same as God. God is our Savior, Christ is our Savior. Christ is the Lord. Christ is God. So you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all working to save people for himself. The Father planning, the Son accomplishing, the Spirit applying those works. This is good news. The fact that we can be saved from our sin, made right with God, that he will work to transform our lives so that we no longer love sin is great news. If it ended here, if it ends right here and we stop, that's good news. But that's not enough. That's not all that God did for us in Christ. He poured out the Holy Spirit on us so that being justified by his grace, we may become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is, we're justified by his grace. We're made right with God at the point of our salvation, our conversion, by which, at which point the life that Christ lived perfectly, his righteousness is imputed to us. It's given to us. It's accredited to us in justification. Big theological term. Christ's perfect life is accredited to us. Our sin is, it was given to him and nailed on the cross. That's what's done for us in justification. We are made right with God. But that's not all. That's glorious. It's our salvation, our conversion. We are no longer enemies of God. But because Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, we are now children of God. It says that we are justified by his grace that we may become heirs of God according to the hope of eternal life. When I talked about adoption earlier, I said that that isn't just a human, it isn't just a human thing, it's a God thing. It's a theological statement where in humanity we take a child who's not our own and we make them our own. 
what God is doing is taking rebels against him, saving them and making them his children. Not just making them right, just not just making peace. But he's making them his children and his heirs, his beloved. We, this is mind-blowing. Like generally, most of us, we think too highly of ourselves. We're like, okay, well, I was a pretty good-looking kid, and God said, hey, there's a good-looking kid. I want him in my family. No, that's not it at all, guys. This is, we are ISIS warring against God. We are killing God's people. We are fighting against God's word. And what God does is he says, I'm going to send my son to pay for their sin. I'm going to send my gospel that they may believe. I'm going to make them my children. You think that's too much? Look at the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this text, was someone who was persecuting the church, who was going door from door, dragging people out of their houses and throwing them in prison for believing, for proclaiming, for trusting in Christ. And God saved him. God confronted him, brought him to a knowledge of his sin, called him to repent and believe. And Paul wrote so much of our New Testament. He proclaimed the gospel throughout the known world at that time. God used Paul mightily. But that's who we were. We aren't these good kids who are getting picked because they're pretty. We are these kids, who, we are these people who are warring against God, who he saved by his grace because he chose to do so in his mercy. Guys, this is, this is awesome. Romans 8, 15 through 17 says the same idea. Paul does it again in Romans 8. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. Adoption is a beautiful thing. And in the gospel, like I said, the Father adopts us. Now, much like human adoption on our half, we take time, like those children when you adopt them, to, to walk with God as our Father. Like when we are saved, it doesn't mean like we are somehow perfected and we no longer sin. We still act like we did before we were adopted. We're still rebellious. We're still, we still struggle. But God, when he adopts us, he makes us right with him, and he lovingly leads us in the way we should go to walk with him in newness of life. In divine adoption, much like a human adoption, our identity changes. We're no longer enemies of God, but beloved children. We're no longer strangers from God, but family. Those who are saved by Christ find their identity changed. They're no longer who they were. This is the good news of the gospel, guys. This is the glorious news of the gospel that we proclaim, that we believe, that God saved us, and that he's making us, that he gave us Christ's righteousness, that he gave us the Holy Spirit, and he's making us more like Christ day by day, that forever we will worship and know him. Guys, God's love for us in Christ should and is intended to stir in us a love for God. John points it out in 1 John, we love 
because he first loved us. Love for our Father comes because he first loved us. But when we love God for what he's done, it doesn't end there. Because the love for our Father, as we, as we grow to love him more, it overflows into a love for others. The Father's love for us and our love for the Father is meant to motivate us to good works. It's meant to be the second reason why we would do these good works. So we've looked at who we were. We looked at who we are now in Christ. So let's look back at verses 1 and 2 and look at how we should live in light of these truths. So the result of the gospel is obedience. It is love that comes out, that, that manifests itself in obedience to God. Not to earn his pleasure, but out of a love for him. Now, Titus reminds the church to follow these commands, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, I, I, I have to talk about this when we talk about works. The motivation of the believers here that Titus is speaking to is to recognize who they were in, apart from Christ, who they once were, and who they are now in Christ. What God has done for them in Christ, that's to be their motivation. Paul says to Titus, nothing about doing these good works to make God happy or to earn anything. These good works aren't about earning our place before God. That was done in Christ. These good works are because we love our Father, we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we recognize who we once were apart from God. We want to love others and, and share with them the good news of what Christ has done. We, too, we, myself, first and foremost, we often fall into this trap of the devil where we think we have to do good things for God to be happy with us. And when we sin, God is angry at us. And God is somehow this, this angry, wrathful, happy God who goes back and forth depending on what we do. We think this. We think, you know, oh my goodness, I, 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 I cursed or I, whatever it may be, whatever is the sin that you struggle with in your heart, pride, cursing, lust, whatever it may be, we say, okay, I just committed that sin again. Lord, I'm sorry. And we, we want to think that God's angry at us at this point. He's like, stop that, kid. And then when, we're, when we do something well, we're like, oh man, God, I just gave money to this poor guy and I said it was in your name and praise the Lord and God's happy. Yay, go Keith. No, guys. God's pleasure toward his children is not based upon our performance. It's based upon Christ's finished work on the cross. In Christ, all of our sin, past, present, and future, has been paid for, and we bear it no longer. And in Christ, he has perfected our imperfect works and deeds so that they please God. Our hope is in the Lord, not in our works. And when our Heavenly Father looks upon us, he sees Christ's righteousness. We're free. We're free no longer to have the performance trap 
No longer to have the debtor's ethic where I just have to pay back God enough to be saved or for him to be happy. We're free in the gospel, guys. We're free to be obedient because we love the Father. We're free to love the Father because our works don't make him love us more or less. We're free to come to the Father when we failed and say, Dad, I failed. Father, I failed. And he's quick to forgive. He's good to forgive. We're obedient because we love him, not because it gets us something. We can, be obe- we can be vulnerable in our life transformation groups, in our community groups with one another because God gave us the church so that we can walk together in newness of life and help each other grow. If you're a Christian, you're God's child. If you are a believer, if you've been saved, justified, and the Holy Spirit dwells within you like Paul, like Paul tells Titus here, then, then you're his child. This calls us to live out our new identity. It calls us to rejoice in what God has done for us. It calls us to, to, to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and mind and strength because of what he did for us. But we're also called to love one another. And we're called to strive for this toward all people. So the gospel is the good news. We're called to live in light of it, who we once were, who we are now. Let's, let's just real quick, what does, what does Paul want Titus to remind them of? Keith, you really hadn't get back to that yet. Be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. These two verses are all application, guys. What are some, what are some ways we can, we can be submissive to rulers and authorities? We don't like that. We're Americans. We were founded by rebels. We fought against the English so that we would not have to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Like, that's just American culture and psyche is we don't like authority. And if you, if you, you see that in our culture so much, you see that in just our, our, our political story. But much like I talked about earlier, parents are an authority that's been given by God for children that they would be walking obedience to them because parents are there for their good. Guys, bosses, believer or not, are in your life for your good that God has put them there. And we need to do our best to to honor God and honor our boss to do well. That can be hard sometimes when we have bosses we don't like or jobs we don't like, but God God has put us at that workplace and has put the boss over us. It's an authority he's put in our life. Guys, he's... The Lord has put the elders in our lives as, as, an, as, as an authority in our church. They're not there to rule over us harshly, but to love us. Um, he's put community group leaders in, in your lives to, to, to bless you and encourage you. And like I said earlier, the Christian life is not a life where it goes, okay, I'm good with God now, I'm living alone in a silo. It's a life we live together as God's children. And in that, we invest in one another. We encourage one another. We, we, we share with one another our struggles. And one way we can do this is we can talk to one another. If you're struggling with questions, doubts, fears, 
um, struggling with understanding theology, don't hide it and think it's not a big deal. Don't, don't think you can't share it because people won't listen or won't accept you. We're here to help each other walk in Christ. Because we always hide it when it's no big deal until it's too big to not let go of. Guys, so we want to be submissive to rulers and authorities. We want to be, be ready for every good work. And I want to thank all the women, the ladies, and the gentlemen who cooked potluck. Thank you for that good work you're doing to the church. Like, I'm seriously thankful for everybody, men and women, who has served to feed us and feed one another. That's one good work. That is a good work, guys. But let's be ready for every good work, even the ones that aren't as tasty. Or the ones that aren't as glorious. You know, what about the good work of, of buying the poor man that's on, that's, that's on Green Street, who's been there for 15 years, a cup of coffee? What about stopping and talking to a coworker and just talking to them, saying, how you doing, and giving the time to them so they can share their heart and you can encourage them in Christ? What about the good work of, of taking your time and saying, it's not my time to watch football, it's my time to play with my kids. It's my time to give them the time. These are all good works. Let's be ready for every good work, guys. And I do want to say, I, 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 have, I have a great father in the flesh. I have a great father in heaven. And I have great examples of fathers in this church. I want to thank all of you who are fathers in this church who put your kids first, who strive to love them, who, who invest in them, who encourage them, who train them up in Christ. Thank you, guys. Mothers as well. I know you, got, you ladies do an enormous amount of work that I never even see or think of. But thank you, ladies. And we want to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. We want to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This is what a life looks like in Christ. This is what we're called to remember to do as a church toward one another and towards the world around us. So let us strive to be faithful in that, guys. Let us strive to, to live out the commands of God. If you say, okay, Keith, you seem pretty excited about, about the gospel. What if I'm not feeling this love for God? What if I'm just not feeling this emotional love for the Lord and what he's done for me in Christ. Well, then here's what I challenge you to do. If you're not, and I'm not saying that I'm the overly emotional person. I'm not. Um, but I do, I do rejoice in what God has done for us in Christ. I do love the Lord for who he is and what he's done. And I would encourage you to go and just read the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Read the gospel. See who Christ is. See the glory and the beauty of who he is, of what was accomplished through him. And it will stir your heart to worship. Don't read it just to read it. Read it slowly and see who Christ is. I once had a very, I'm a logical and analytical person. I once had a very hard time understanding the beauty of Christ. I'm like, uh, we're Baptists, we don't have pictures. I was pretty simple back then. Um, then I was like, okay, what do you mean beauty of Christ? How do I, I, I see his works, I see his deeds, I see his words. 
How do I see the beauty of Christ? And believe it or not, for those of you who know me, I saw, I, I, I figured it out in sports, which makes no sense because I see no sports. But what I saw in the sports was when they talk about the beautiful three throw, free throw, the beautiful soccer kick, the, the, the glorious touchdown, the, they talk about beauty in action. Sports is talking about when it says glory or beauty, it's talking about actions. So when you look to see the beauty of Christ, we're not looking for a picture. We're not looking for a, a particular image. What we're looking for is who he is and what he's done. So read the word. Read it slowly. Examine who Christ is, what he has done, and you will, by God's grace and by his Holy Spirit, abound in a love for him and for others. Guys, if you do feel that love, let me encourage you. Remember to strive to walk in newness of life in Christ. And let us strive to walk to live out this new identity in Christ together. Not alone, not as, a, not as Christian silos blocked off from everyone else, but let us strive to do this as community groups, as life transformation groups, and as a church as a whole. Let us strive to, to grow to love the Lord, our God, with all our heart, soul, minds, and strength together. So we've seen who we once were in Christ. We've seen who we are now, or who we once were apart from Christ, who we now, now are in Christ, and how that calls us to new life, new obedience. And let us strive to live out who we now are in Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ that, Lord, we did nothing to save ourselves. Lord, that you showed us that we needed to be saved, that you showed us our sin. And Lord, that you saved us, that you acted, that in Christ we may be saved. Lord, that you loved us before we ever loved you, that you loved us when we rebelled against you. God, thank you for that good news, Lord, and help us to live in light of who we now are. Lord, you've adopted us. We're your children. Help us to live in light of that new identity we have in Christ. Lord God, we thank you and praise you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.